You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So um, welcome everybody. This is um, Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It's uh, September 30th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific uh, Daylight Time. We've been talking the last few weeks about uh, meaningfulness, and I thought that we would uh, shift topic, uh, and I thought that maybe we would talk about attachment and attachment conditioning, and then what the reconditioning process looks like uh, and how that relates to uh, our framework of... um, Uh, meditation uh, strategies or meditation practices. Um, I sometimes think that the the need for working on uh, issues that are not directly related to uh, enlightenment in meditation uh, is because sometimes the uh, conditioning interferes with the ability to practice in a way that would produce uh, that kind of outcome. And uh, mainly uh, people who come to practice uh, who I uh, see are householders. And so there's uh, in that process uh, of householding the, the necessity to engage in the world in a way that if you were a monastic practitioner, you probably would not have to do. There still is the society of the uh, monastery that needs to be attended to, but uh, most monasteries are strictly um, hierarchical in their structure, and there's a a power dynamic there that we don't have uh, as householders unless we join a system and uh, uh, agree with the uh, power structure outside of the home, of course, inside of the home you make the kind of uh, structure that you want to have, or you submit to a structure that somebody else is uh, imposing. Um, and you either do that because you feel that uh, it's a good to, good uh, thing to do, or that you don't feel that you have an alternative to doing. Uh, so, um, and that usually is a, is part of the outcome of the Uh, attachment conditioning and the views that tend to uh, form around that. Um, One way to think about practice is to understand uh, the view of self and world and uh, the true nature of this. So depending on the the path or the map that you use. um, uh, Can be described quite differently. Um, There's a book by Daniel Ingram, which many of us have read, that has an appendix in the back or appendage in the back that has all sorts of different uh, maps or ways of trying to understand this. You might refer to, I know, in the the map that I like to talk about mostly is the progress of insight. Um, (laughs) Uh, Christian posted the question, does uh, householding apply to renters? (laughs) 
I could launch into a, 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 a rant about the capitalist nature of things and how soon, if if the oligarchy has its way, we'll all be renters. Uh, but we'll set that aside. <laughs> um, I've talked about exploration, exploration for meaningfulness, and and part of this is this uh, dynamic back and forth between being able to feel connected and safe uh, with people. And then because you feel connected and safe uh, and secure in that relationship, you're then free to go and explore things that have meaning. Uh, and that if you don't have that secure base to, to uh, come back to and uh, settle with, it makes the exploration piece harder. Um, what you want uh, in um, a perfect world is a sensitive enough caregiver who responds to you. Uh, that is to say, they see you, they begin to understand how you are and how you tick. Uh, they're delighted in that uh, process and then they support it uh, with the means that they have available them, uh, available to them to support. And then depending on the different uh, ways that they respond to, it affects uh, how you begin to develop a sense of yourself and then also a sense of the world. Um, how do you uh, discover that? How do you map that out for yourself? Um, do you feel free, which is I think one of the reasons that we all practice, or do you feel confined? And then if you do uh, not feel free, how would you figure out how to free yourself? That's kind of uh, inquiry that I think is helpful. Um, can you mentalize well enough? And mentalizing means that you're able to track what's actually happening. Um, and um, know the source of why you form your response to it and then have uh, some agency in responding to it so you take in the data you compare it to the perceptual database you you can track it well enough that you know how or, or what it is that you're discovering in the perceptual database that's informing the meaning that you make out of the present moment uh, as you make that meaning, you can compare the present moment circumstances to the uh, historical experience that you've used to base your understanding of what's happening. And then you can respond from the place of the present moment rather than reacting from the, the uh, memory uh, and the meaning that you've assigned. Is that making sense that so far? So if you can actively mentalize in each moment, you notice how you make the thing. You understand the, the, the uh, historical experiences that have um, informed it, or if you don't have historical experiences that match the conditions of the present moment, you uh, imagine uh, the meaning and response. Uh, you're able to stay in the experience of the present moment and then respond so intention and action formed in response to that comparison between uh, 
uh, how you made it and, and what you think it is. Uh, the word that I, I like to describe that in Pali is tajapanati, which means that you're constantly moving between the experience of sensing and what you make it into so that you can um, ensure the accuracy of what you're creating in the present moment actually matches the present moment and is not something that you slip into uh, the past representation and act as if that's it. Christian. So what's the guiding principle or I mean, are you like consciously choosing to be in the present moment or um, or sort of in the sense of self more? Or, I don't know if I'm mixing up. I don't know if I'm mixing well, you up would up. notice in the present moment, the sense of self that arises in response to the conditions. Yeah. But like, are you are you just like 99% of the time I'm sitting in the present moment and things are not fixated and then sometimes I go into this, this fixated mode of conceptual thinking um, or like what's the balance and what, what causes an advanced practitioner say to go between one or the other or to favor one at one moment or the other? Well, uh, Shinzen used to call it a figure ground reversal where you come out of the identification of the self and into identification with awareness and in awareness, you see the arising and passing of the sense of self, and you see the arising and passing of conceptual reality. Uh, and, uh, and you're not identified or attached to it. Attached in um, Buddhism means that you fixate the sensing experience into something. Uh, Dan Brown uses the term, gra the term grab or grabbiness that something about the conditions of the present moment have grabbed to them and so you solidify them, but in that process, identify with that creation as if it were what's actually happening rather than staying in awareness. Um, and then watching these things come and go, free to compare the sensing experience to what's happening. Um, maybe one way to explain this, and I have so many of these experiences once I started tracking them. I sat down, and you've, I think you've probably heard me say this, I sat down in my therapist's office, I looked down, there was a new rug. I said, you got a new rug, it's beautiful, I really like it. And he said, I got a new rug six months ago, you've been here 20 times, you're, you're just noticing it now? Um, uh, and if you look at the research around this, what you see is that the, bi the body mind does not generate a new representation in every moment unless you train it to. It will use a representation from a few weeks ago if it's more economical to regenerate uh, the old one than to actually go through the process of generating a new one. Um, you've heard me say this, I'm sure. Motorcycles with one headlight are nine times more likely to be run off the road than motorcycles with two headlights. The most common response to a driver in a car running a motorcycle off the street is that he wasn't there. I didn't see him. This is particularly true on commuter routes. They're the most treacherous for one headlight motorcycles. 
because you commute back and forth, but you don't recreate the current image necessarily. So if yesterday or two days ago, the space next to you didn't have a motorcycle in it, and you're using the old space, tracking the cars, but not the motorcycles, you create a version of reality that has no motorcycle in it. There was a famous lawsuit. Uh, a police officer was kicked off the force uh, for failing to aid an officer in distress. So uh, there was a foot chase with a, a, a burglar and uh, two officers were chasing the same uh, uh, um, perpetrator, what do we call them? Um, burglar and um, the burglar shot one of the policemen and the policeman fell over and uh, the second policeman didn't see the shooting and ran right past the police officer uh, after the burglar and when they asked them why he didn't stop and aid the police officer who'd been shot he said he didn't see him um, and everybody thought that that was an unreasonable explanation because if you were, if you walked the scene, it would be impossible not to see him. But they were able to prove that in selective focus, we don't take in the whole picture, we just take in what we're focused on. So we talk about this in meditation quite a bit. You don't survey the whole scene and then create a balanced picture of it. You survey the things that have interest to you and then you collect the interesting bits and you form the experience uh, out of the things that you've focused on um, that were interesting to you. And because your conditioning is different and the hierarchy of things that you find uh, meaningful differs uh, from somebody else's conditioning, you're selecting different parts of what you're surveying and creating an experience that's based on your conditioning. Stas? I was thinking about, you know, there's the sensing object and what we make of it. And I was thinking for me, you know, there will be experiences where something will be unfixated, even though I know what it is, and then it snaps into place. Um, you know, you have your is it twilight meditation. Yes. Have you done it? Uh, uh, no, I haven't done that one. Yeah, it's but fun. I was thinking, is you know, if it's possible to like make or have some meditation object that's very hard for people to fixate, um, and then just stay with it for long enough to kind of see that process. Well, when I was uh, first doing this, I I had a post production company. And we had a, a library of 150,000 sounds. And, uh, and I would just take CDs at random from the collection and put them on and listen to the sounds. And it was very easy uh, in doing it like that to find sounds that I had no idea what they were. And then uh, if that process lasts longer than a half a second, in the experience of the present moment, you have the mind attempting to figure out what it is and then fixating 
And then if there's more information that says that's not it, releasing it and then coming back again and fixating it. So it is only with the things that you don't know that that it takes longer than a half a second for that to enter into consciousness. Otherwise, it enters completely fixated. And it's very hard to pry them apart once they're together. That's why the twilight meditation is useful. So if, if you haven't had the description of twilight meditation, you sit in a room with natural lighting at dusk, and then as the light uh, uh, drops away, you have to uh, sit in a space where it gets really dark. That uh, is a dog who's just moved in, which I'm calling Little Lovely uh, today. Um, but who knows? Yesterday uh, it was Daphne, and the day before it was Fred. So we'll see where it lands. <laughs> Didn't take the, lo the dog long to become territorial, which is hilarious. Calm down. Um, that always worked when people said it to me. <laughs> uh, um, let's see here. In twilight meditation, you sit in a room that will get so dark that you can't see anything. And so when we talk about rods and cones in the eye, rods see edges and contrast and cones see color it takes more light for the cones to respond with color than it, it takes to activate the rods you may uh, 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 have the experience of walking around at night and noticing that there's not a lot of color in the visual experience of walking around in the semi-darkness it doesn't mean that uh, there aren't colors there the same colors that were there when there was enough light it's that there's not enough light to activate the cone so there's no color fill in uh, in that um, as uh, you sit in a twilight eyes open of course this is an eyes open med meditation you fixate your gaze uh, usually what we say is about six feet in front of you and you don't make an effort to focus. So you, it's a fixed gaze and a soft focus. And then you watch uh, what happens to the environment around you in visual space. First, as it gets uh, slightly darker, uh, the, the color will drain out and it will be mainly a black and white experience. And then just as you get to the edge where the rods uh, have a hard time picking up the lines that define what you're looking at, uh, the whole visual field begins to roll and fixate and roll and fixate and, and it can be a wildly different version than what's actually in front of you. And doing that uh, will clue you in to the nature of the variability of the, the, the visual field. Um, the um we tend to without questioning questioning it think that what we're seeing that tableau that we create is an accurate picture and actually it's created and it can be quite varied uh, from what's actually in front of you and then you're 
you're having the experience of sitting in visual, uh, the visual experience of the outside world and, and knowing that it's completely different than the way the mind is creating it in the moment. Uh, and then uh, eventually there won't be enough light in the room to pick up the edges and then the mind will stop attempting to create what's in front of you. So that's the cycle of that. I suppose you could do it uh, uh, at dawn too, but I've never tried that. So you start in blackness and then watch the world be born and then become this solid, colorful place. Does that make sense, that those instructions? Um, I, I can't do it where I live because there's too much ambient light. Um, so it has to be a place that, that does get quite dark after the sun goes down. We want to get to the place uh, where we're not frightened by that anymore. One of the things that happens early in practice that can be uh, a break on it is that as you begin to see that the, the usual sense of solidness, the sense of uh, self being continuous, as that begins to come apart, there's a fearful, often a fearful response to that. How do we, how do we uh, hold ourselves safely knowing that we're really limited to our perception and what we make things into, and that it's easy to, to create a distorted view and have, and have a hard time uh, discerning that. When I uh, went to Shinzen with this uh, line of thinking, he said, imagine that you're a bird inside of a cage. And when you look around, the cage is solid. You're, you're grabbing onto a perch. It seems solid. When you look at yourself, you're, you seem solid. But then you notice that the door of the cage is open. And when you fly out of the cage, you can see that the, the cage is actually falling through space. And that it's not resting on anything. But when you get frightened, you can zip right back into the cage where everything looks solid again. And then when you settle down, you can zip out and see that actually there's this vast expanse and that that, that ordering principle of the, of the self actually helps navigate that. Is that making sense? Is, do you feel reassured by that, Christian? I was gonna say, first of all, the twilight meditation sounds like uh, budget psychedelics. <laughs> uh, we don't have money but uh I, I i was thinking about the underlying premises of my earlier question and i'm trying to figure out if, if i understand like the path is the path saying you should be in this unfixated mode all the time and you should move more and more towards that i guess the un underlying premise i had was there must be good reasons to live in, in the fixated world. And like, there must be th things that we do better that are part of our lives where we live in this fixated world. And so I, I sort of wonder about what the path, what the Buddhist path 
is intending in terms of the time that we spend in the fixated world uh, versus the unfixated world and whether we're meant to move towards a totally unfixated existence or to just be okay with either one and we don't really control which one we're in. I, I'm, I, I'm asking a lot of questions here, but I'm trying to kind of just get the sense of what the Buddhist idea of like, is there a better way to be? Is there a best way to be? Um, I think Sasaki Roshi used to say, sometimes we'd go up uh, to Mount Boldy for taste shows. He would say, my job as a meditation teacher is a travel agent taking you effortlessly from heaven to hell, uh, which I, I think is the uh, answer to your question. Um, we want to be able to move in and out of the self-experience and the fixated world whenever we want to, uh, so that we can skillfully manage it. So as uh, Shin, Shin Zen would say, manifesting a brilliant sense of self at the snap of a fingers, but then when you don't need it anymore, not holding on to it, not clinging to it. So that's the idea. So you you allow the this easy coming and going uh, between the sense of the fixated, brilliant, capable sense of self, and then when you don't need it anymore, it simply dissolves back into the pure sensing experience. Um, is that making sense? And then if I were, I describe that to you, and so you understood it cognitively, uh, now can you just do it? So then we realize actually that we don't, we're not, we're not free in that way to be able to just switch. We have to we have to figure out what we're actually doing and then we may need to retrain ourselves so that we can respond differently than we did before. We need to maybe see that uh, we're identified with the sense of self and that causes us suffering and then to come out of that and then to understand how to move uh, between the two so that when we need it, the sense of self is there and brilliant and effective, and when we don't, it's gone. We don't cling to it. We don't, as Dan would say, grab it. There's no grabbiness to the sense of self. So you move in and out of it. And then the other piece was what we were talking about last week, which was the, the view of the, the, this experience as uh, sacred and how much of the time can you simply drop into the view that this is sacred? How much the time do you spend in seeing the, the, uh, the this experience uh, as that? And how much of the time is it then uh, obscured by other mind states or other self-experiences that get in the way of it? So, you know, the, the two models is that the, the sky is obscured and you have to work at uh, clearing it out so that you can touch into that. And the other is that it's always there, that when you move the obscurations away, that it, it, it was always present. So the sun is shining, there's clouds, you remove the clouds and you experience the sun or you, you build the sun, one of the two. Um, 
one of the things about the human condition is that it we really are when we say conditioned conditioned uh, i uh if if we weren't like that uh then uh, uh hearing the explanation one time would be enough to free you um and then you you of course in the in the in the buddhist the canon there's all these descriptions of people hearing at one time and becoming instantly liberated this was not my personal experience <laughs> in fact ad nauseum wasn't enough <laughs> Um, Shinzen used to describe it as a hockey stick. You know, you're going along, you're going along, you're practicing, you're intent on your practice, and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. You're just flatlined. And then all of a sudden it, it takes off and, and the growth is obvious and, and you experience it in an exponential way. Um, I would also, uh, you know, uh, talk about mentalizing that way. One of the things that Vipassana is so good at is developing mentalizing. Um, somebody who mentalizes at a two is mentalizing at twice the capacity of a one. And somebody who's mentalizing at a three is four times, it's exponential. As your skill develops, and of course your capacity to mentalize uh, develops, you can process this stuff much faster and see it much clearer. And so that it begins to take off and, and go faster and faster in that way. Another way to put it would be that the path from just ordinary existence to stream entry is much shorter than the path from stream enterer to arahat. So the, the, the basic stuff is pretty easy to grasp and you can train yourself to be effective in it uh, quickly or pretty quickly. And then uh, to really get into the weeds and see what's happening and then have agency uh, uh, takes a lo longer maybe. I say that, um, There isn't a single model because everybody's path is based on their conditioning. So um, what you have to do is going to be based on your conditioning, not on, um, it's not universal in that sense. So some people can move quite quickly because they have less to do. Some people have more to do, so it takes longer. So it isn't a, a good, a, the concept of time is not a good uh, evaluation of that. One of the th uh, uh, things that um, kind of, I can't accurately pinpoint who said it, uh, but they said that uh, one of the things about mona monastics in Asia is that they think they have thousands of lifetimes to do this. So they may not be as practice, practicing as hard as uh, the the Westerners who who really are so indoctrinated in the idea of one life that we think we have to get enlightenment in this lifetime because there isn't going to be another one to get it in. Is that making sense? 
the um, can you come into this place of real tenderness with yourself, uh, delight in the way that you are, without changing anything? Remember that change is always. It, there's no way that you can escape from uh, change. So. It, it's almost not necessary to say that without changing the way that you are now, can you come into this place of delighting in yourself, in delighting in the experiences that you've had that have created the conditioning and that makes you this uh, activity? And can you then explore that with interest uh, uh, and effect so that you can begin to see what's useful and what isn't and just begin to discard the stuff that isn't useful without attaching to it and then uh, understanding that often what happens when you do that is that you there's a skills deficit and so you have to learn new things and so you begin this process of developing the things that you need to know so that you can carry yourself in the direction that you want to go um, in this process of discovery uh, of this, uh, you know, quite marvelous existence that we have, without uh, that uh, getting so trapped in the, the experience of self, which is, you know, a lot of suffering. If you notice that you create a sense of self that's suffering and you step out of it and uh, jump back into a different sense of self. How free are you to do that? Now that you know it's a thing to do, uh, what, do you have, what do you have to do in order to be able to do it? That's the, the question of practice, really. Um, so why don't we do some practice? <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> I'm going to close the door. So how was that? Christian? I was having a lot of... Uh... PT, like it was almost like sort of gusts of like tingling, just kind of moving across and like pulsating and stuff. And I, I know it was feel, and I didn't seem to detect emotions with it, but I, I found it strange. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be sure which feel it was, and I found it strange that I couldn't detect like real solid emotions with such a strong sensation. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I was trying to figure out what that kind of PT would be, whether whether that's just feel out or or if that's almost a sort of different categorization. Well, normally we just note it as feel flow. Okay. And then what you would watch is the flow move from sense gate to sense gate. Yeah, I and saw then... that it went to like visual, and then I think there was a little bit of uh, going to auditory too. Most of the time, auditory flow is a subtle vibratory activity that, that once you tune into it is there most of the time. 
And then you'll notice that if you really tune into it, that the cognition of what the clear talk is going to be precedes the clear talk. That if you actually hold the cognition well enough, it never fixates, but you, you know what, what the thought was going to be. But then if you don't, it solidifies into words and then you hear the, hear the words. So that's a fun investigation. It seemed like, I don't know if there's a flow for here out, but there was just like a, there's like a lot of noises going on outside and they were all kind of swirling together. Yeah, there is. It's just not fixating. Um, when you get into that space, for instance, somebody could be talking to you, but you wouldn't form words. You just hear the vibration. So you wouldn't be able to understand what they were saying. <laughs> Through self, you you would know through wisdom, but not through self. Of course. <laughs> Good. Someone else? All right. So what's coming up? We have a level uh, one starting on October 9th, I think, or October 6th. What is it? Let me look. Um, so it's three day long, three um, weekends of day longs, um, two weeks apart. Um, so not uh, this Saturday, but the following Saturday, the ninth, and then uh, every two weeks uh, into November, we'll cover the level one curriculum. We do have four spaces left on our retreat at Seven Circles uh, in um, Badger, California, which is in the Sierras near Sequoia National Park. So if you're interested in a retreat, uh, take a look at that. It's on the website. Uh, we're starting a, a level two class in January. I think that's up on the site as well. I'm going to do a meditation and addiction retreat uh, uh, this winter, I don't, we haven't scheduled it yet, but it'll be in February. Uh, uh, I think that's about it for what's coming up for the next six months or so. So if you're interested in any of that, take a look and then uh, you can sign up. Thank you for coming for, for uh, to tonight's class. I really appreciate your practice. Um, I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. You can do so um, by uh, clicking the link on the website. Any amount is helpful. Uh, help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Bye.